Good morning. Made the fatal error of not unmuting myself. Should know better by now. Uh, made some apologies uh, for my uh, subconscious dislike of avocado. I didn't see that one coming out, and I'm amazed that you picked it up. <laughs> my apologies. Um, yeah, I've been asked to do a. Uh, uh, Um, a, a Lenten reflection on um, lament. Um, I realised that as I as I read this through uh, this morning that um, it's full of uh, male pronouns. Um, obviously, I, I don't believe that God is male. Uh, God is both male and female, and however we choose to see him or her. So I wouldn't want that to um, cause anyone to stumble. So when I say he, it's just because I'm an old guy, and that's how I've always said it. But I'm in the process of learning too, so here we are. Um, so here's a, a morning's reflection on the practice of lament, which is the theme for the second Sunday in Lent from Beth Richardson's book, Walking in the Wilderness. But what is lament and what does it mean? And is it even relevant to us today? It sounds a bit old worldly, but at its heart, it's sadness and grief. It's an expression of pain and suffering that goes beyond words to a deep cry of anguish from our souls. It's us saying to God, hey, I'm in pain here, to which God says, I know, I understand, and I'm with you in it. Something that's helped me immensely in the last couple of years is realizing simply that God knows and God is not surprised. He's not surprised by my thoughts, my choices, my experiences, my motivations, or the outcome of those choices. And also, he does not withdraw from me because of any of these things. And more importantly, he's not the cause of my suffering. So what is lament? Beth Richardson in her book says this. Um, lament. What's my name? It's my hands, excuse me. <laughs> lament is a prayer for our help that comes from a place of pain or distress. Lament gives voice to our intimate feelings and deepest longings. A dictionary definition um, says this, a lament is a passionate expression of grief, often in music, poetry, or song form. The grief is most often born of regret or mourning. The Psalms are full of uh, examples of lament, and, and Beth tells us that about one third of the Psalms have elements of lament in them. And maybe that tells us something, that God is okay with our honesty, he wants to hear our deepest feelings expressed to him, even though he already knows them. I've had an uneasy relationship with the Psalms in recent years, and that's an interesting admission for a worship leader. I've often found them confusing, difficult to access. And maybe that's not surprising um, when we realize that we're reading ancient Hebrew poetry or song, sometimes without very much context and without the melody that went with it. There also seem to be multiple voices at work and rapid changes of directions and emotions. It's like, this is likely in part because we're hearing the voice of the psalmist pouring out his heart in all his humanity. And also we hear the voice of Jesus speaking prophetically through the psalmist to us. So here are some examples of lament at work. Psalm 13 verse one. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 6. 
Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. So this is pretty honest stuff. And we can feel the pain and the torment coming through the words, and it can sound like God is angry with us and withdraws from us in our suffering. This is what David in these two Psalms seems to be saying if we just read the words literally. But this is not the nature of God we see in Jesus, rather the opposite. In him, we see the suffering servant who knows our pain and humanity intimately. Jesus has been there. And he wants to hear from us an honest expression of what we're experiencing. He will meet us in our pain and grief and we don't need to hide it from him. If we need any further evidence that this is true, we have to look no further than Psalm 22. This is a psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross in the middle of incredible suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest of that verse says, why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? So it gets a little mystical here, but here's Jesus quoting a song that he wrote through David a thousand years before it was needed. He is suffering profoundly and expressing his pain through his lament. So Jesus lamented. So we maybe should grasp this concept and do the same when we need to. God is not surprised by our honesty, and maybe it's us that really needs to be honest and hear ourselves express our pain to the one who knows and the one who cares for us the most. Sometimes there's a resolution in our situation and healing for our pain, and sometimes there's not, as it in, is in the Psalms. But Jesus is present with us regardless and wants to hear from us from where we truly are. Lament can be part of the healing process as an honest prayer to our loving God who knows and deeply cares for us. So we talked a little bit about lament. And, uh, and I also said that the Psalms are songs. And um, it's funny if you just quote a lyric, it doesn't sound the same as it does when you sing it. Because the melody somehow emphasizes certain words and the reason that the song was written that way. Now, we don't know what the Psalms would have sounded like um, or what the tune would have been like. So this isn't, just in case you were wondering, the original tune. Um, but I just wanted to finish uh, this reflection by encouraging you to find a Psalm maybe that says and expresses what you're feeling. The book says, go write your own Psalm. And there's some instructions on how to do that. I actually didn't want to do that. Um, so I took Psalm 13. So uh, this could be a one and done uh, experience, but here we go. How long, oh Lord, will you forget me? How long, oh Lord, Will you look the other way? How long, oh Lord, must I wrestle with my thoughts? And every day, 
that's such sorrow in my heart. Look on me and answer, oh God, my Father, bring light to my darkness before they see me fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. Yes, my heart will rejoice. Still I sing in your unfailing love. You have been good. You will be good. To me. So Jesus, thank you for giving us the words for our pain and our grief when we don't have them. Thank you that you know what it means to suffer, that what it means to be human, and you're with us in every step of every journey of every day throughout every moment of pain and suffering as well as the joyful moments. So Jesus, help us to be honest with you because you already know. And Lord, we, we offer all of those things in which we suffer this morning and the thoughts which sometimes seem to stop us from functioning at all. And we give them to you, knowing that you know us, you love us, and you understand. So I encourage you to be honest and take on the practice of lament. If that's what you feel, then we should do that as much as the times when we celebrate and everything in between. Okay, so I'm going to hand over to Karina. Um, Karina, just bless you for this morning. Father, uh, thank you for uh, Karina, for who she is. Father, thank you for everything you've placed in her. Father, thank you for what uh, you have given her this morning uh, and that's what you're going to speak to us through her about. Uh, I bless every part of her journey and every word she speaks this morning in your name. Amen. Thanks, Steve. You guys, I am, I feel like one of the luckiest ones here because um, I, I get to do school with Steve and let me just tell you, you want to come join us and do school with us because you would get to know Steve better. And that's been amazing for me. Steve, when you're talking about bringing our honest lament, I couldn't help but thinking in the book of Mark, this is, this is the pre-sermon that I'm giving you right now. It's a freebie. But in the book of Mark, in a lot of our translations, it talks about Jesus as the son of man. And in some of the stuff that I was doing, one of the authors suggested that we think of that, retranslate it for ourselves as the human one. And he's so acquainted with our human condition. And I just love how Jesus demonstrates in our suffering in our pain, in our joy, in our rejoicing. Jesus is the human one. And there isn't a part of the human experience that he's asking us to hide from. So just um, thank you so much for that, 
Steve, I really appreciated that. So <clears throat> I was preparing for the sermon here and I, and I couldn't think how, how do we, how do we get this started? And um, it's funny, you know, like I, I've gone to church almost my entire life and there are a couple of sermon illustrations that still stand out to me. And this one popped back into my head. So I don't actually even know if this was the original sermon illustration or if it's what I heard and translated as a kid. I don't know, but let's hope it works. Uh, so the story goes like this. Maybe you've heard this before. There once was a woman who bought a roast, cut the end off of it, put it in her pan, and made her family a Sunday dinner. And the family commented on how delicious the meal was. And so the next week she did it again. And week after week, the same thing would happen. Buy the roast, cut off the end, put it in the pan and make dinner. And her children grew up and they started making their roast dinners and they did the same. And, and it became their family's favorite weekend dinners. Buy the roast, cut off the end, heat, serve, enjoy. And the family did this without question for years, decades, generations, until one day, one of the granddaughters about to embark on uh, her maiden voyage of making roast dinners, picked up a roast and grabbed the recipe card that had passed down from grandmother to mother, her aunts, her uncles, and got started. Preheat the oven, check, season the roast, got it cut the end off the roast and place it in the nine by nine pan. And she picked up her butcher knife and went to slice away the end and something stopped her. But why? She phoned her mom and she said, mom, why do we need to cut off the end of the roast? And her mom thought about it and said, well, I don't know. It's just what we've always done. I'll ask my brother and down the family line they went. Aunts and uncles kind of shrugging their shoulders having various reasons. Oh, it makes it taste better. It cooks more evenly, but none were compelling enough to convince her. So she eventually called up her grandmother and she asked again, why do we cut the end of the roast off for like, you know, the famous Sunday dinner? And grandma thought about it. And she said, well, I never had a roasting pan. So I just made it work with a smaller dish. Context matters. Withholding context can create some great, really, uh, really great cinematic moments, right? You know, like that moment in the movie where someone says something and all of a sudden your whole perspective on the character or the, the movie plot changes, right? Like, like when Prince Humperdinck says to Count Rugen, he says, when I hired Vicini to have Buttercup murdered on our engagement day, I thought that was clever but it's going to be so much more moving when I strangle her on our wedding night. He's the bad guy. Or forgive me, but in our family, this is the most iconic movie moment of all. Luke, I am your father. No! Those are great plot twists revealed when the context or or perspective changes, right? But sometimes, like when we're reading the Bible, we get caught up in our traditions and forget to continue to be curious about why we see things the way we do. I think it's why Jesus so often said, you've heard it said, but I say, 
we can forget that this is an ancient document in a completely different culture and not realize that we're projecting stuff we know or stuff that goes without saying for us that never would have happened when those stories were first told. Or we can be missing information that went without saying back in the day that gives the story a whole different flavor or meaning than before. And honestly, that's what happened to me at the beginning of the month when I was talking through this text with a teacher that I have um, about this passage from the lectionary. So what we're gonna do today is play plot twist in biblical interpretations with Karina, yay! I've been watching a lot of Muppet show, forgive me. Um, but before we get going, Jen Boxel, I would love it if you would read the scripture that I'm preaching from this morning. Thanks, Karina. Uh, yes, Karina's asked me to read from the NRSV version. Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jen. So I'm wondering, when you hear deny yourself and take up your cross, what were the earliest ideas that you had about that? When I was a kid, and even a young adult, it kind of sounded, the, the message that I remember got, uh, getting was like, don't enjoy anything. Enjoyment probably means you're sinning. Do the thing you most don't want to do, and that will prove that you're following Jesus. So then Jesus will not be ashamed of you. Or it sounded like you were born to die, just like Jesus. You, you should want to die. You should want to be a martyr. You guys, this stressed me out so badly as a kid. I really liked being alive. Why would I want to die? I'm telling you, man, like I'm doing evangelicalism. It's going to keep my therapist employed for years, not even joking. So when I came to the text this month, I just had questions. Is there a better story? So I asked my teacher Renee about it. I just was like, I'm stuck with this old narrative and I'm having a hard time seeing something. I knew there was something new that I needed to see. And before I get to her response, I want to ask you this. What does the cross mean to you? What does it symbolize? I want you to think about that. Because for me, it symbolizes, you know, ultimate redemption, co-suffering love, radical forgiveness, all the meaning that we've made around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? Th those are valid and if I could see my screen, maybe you're sharing some of those things that have come up for you. But 
it's time for a plot twist. This story in Mark 8 happened before Jesus was crucified. So what does the cross mean to those people that have heard Jesus say this? The cross had one meaning. Don't upset the status quo. Don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with the system. If you do, you will be stripped literally naked and violently punished and publicly humiliated and shamed for not keeping the peace of Rome. It was absolute violence inflicted on those who had no power or status, who dared to imagine that the world should be different, right? Crucifixion did not happen for the upper levels of society. It was a method of control and oppression. For the people that heard it for the first time, it was not a symbol of redemption. It was not marketed as jewelry to hang around people's necks. I mean, you guys, it makes sense now that that has multiple meanings. That's great now, but we wanna read it like people heard it back then. I'm kind of, when I read that, the, the original, when I think about it in the original context, I'm reminded of that quote from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where someone asks, I think it's Mrs. Beaver, is he safe? And she answers, oh no, he's not safe, but he is good. Jesus is not safe, you guys, but he's been really tamed by tradition. So the plot thickens. I noticed at the beginning of the text who it is Jesus says he's going to upset. It's the religious order, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. I just thought that was kind of interesting. He's not talking right now about, you know, upsetting the man or Caesar or the soldiers. So I have this book, um, Man and Mercy. I appreciate it very much as a companion to reading my Bible because it, it talks very much about the social order of different eras in ancient times. I find it so helpful. So Josh, if you could share that uh, one picture that I scanned. So I want us to see this. This is a picture of the broad social structure in the time that this um, this was written. And, and you might not be able to read it, all the little fine print there, but I'll kind of try and describe it for you. You can see that it's a pyramid and they've got this God that they've decided up top who is the image of order in the Jewish society that would also include the image of total purity. And we've got the royal priesthood like at the top and the military. And those are the voices that just say, this is the way it is and it will always be. And at the top, you've got your rulers, the wealthy, the powerful, and then you just keep going down this, the scale, you know, people, tradespeople, craft people, lower down, we have tenant farmers, ordinary farmers in terrible debt. And then below that, we have landless day laborers, widows, orphans, beggars. And then below that, we have slaves. So I just, that this is the kind of picture that we want to keep in mind when we're imagining what Jesus is talking about, who he's talking to, the world that they lived in. You can end the screen sharing if you like. Thanks. So the high priests were actually appointed by Rome. And if they upheld the system of Rome, they could be exempt from declaring Caesar as Lord. 
They could remain safe. They could have absence of conflict. They could stay comfortable and create religious interpretations of God that explained and sanctioned suffering. This is the way things have always been and must always be. They were complicit in the methods of maintaining Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, control through crucifixion. Take up your cross and follow me is not an idea, but an action. Jesus isn't here creating better theology for our bookshelf, but enacting justice for people that have been put on the shelf. Jesus is showing us the way of bringing the kingdom of God to earth right then and right now. And the good news is the way of Jesus, you know, it only costs us everything that is opposed to love. Everything we never needed anyways. So you can see why sometimes it feels easier to fall back into tradition, to just keep cutting the roast and keeping it small. This requires something new, something different. Here's the thing, Jesus knew who he was and who he wasn't. This is what his desert experience formed in him. Despite all the times people projected their pain or their plan onto him, which is what Peter does earlier in the text, he could put that aside, just ego denied. My friend reminded me, you can't give up anything you haven't owned. Denying yourself is about doing inner work, getting rid of every false thing that weighs you down, occupying your humanity fully. Doing inner work is not frivolous or unspiritual. The work of love and liberation begins in us before it can extend from us. We need to know ourselves to let go of ourselves. Come on, somebody. Jesus could face accusation without crumbling because all that was left in him was the truth. And Jesus is inviting the disciples to let go of the part of self that puts aside the love of neighbor to secure personal safety, that exchanges a robust peace for anemic lack of conflict. And the invitation for us to continue this work of Jesus remains. And, and I can think of how doing this upsets religious systems. I mean, we're prone to seek comfort and deny pain and to not disrupt anything. It's the same for us today. I mean, we have religious systems that demand we must defend this theologically. Fight with me, they say. Farewell, heretic. And I mean, it's not that you can't do that or that the academia isn't maybe there. But Jesus, right in this moment, is inviting us into something different. We don't win by dominating arguments. Sometimes there's a, there's a place for you know, going back and forth and understanding. But you guys, sometimes we just have to say, bye Felicia and let go of winning. Let go of being right. Let go of being well-respected in the religious community. We have to be willing to let our ego die a thousand deaths and get on with the work of love, justice, and liberation. Another plot twist. Are you ready? What if I told you that during this time when Jesus spoke these words, 
there was also a group of Judean nationalists who were against the control of Rome and wanted to subvert the system of oppression. Jesus wasn't the only one causing disruptive, disruptive disruption, sorry, and challenging oppression in his day. But the nationalists had a rally cry. Take up your sword. Defeat violence with violence. And Jesus is prophesying, prophesying a different way forward for his followers. Deny yourself and take up your cross is a message of boundaries and surrender. Jesus had two really important boundaries that he communicates here. The first is oppression and dominance do not get a free pass with Jesus, no matter how long or how dear the tradition is. Jesus is not here to trim down the roast anymore. Jesus has been to the desert and learned the difference between self-sacrifice and self-betrayal. And so must we. If we're following the Jesus way, we'll start to see how power imbalances need to be named and dismantled. Following Jesus changes how we see. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. followed Jesus in this way. And he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So what will be our part? What will our portion be? Whether you believe unjust things about yourself or your neighbor, or you see injustice in the world around you, I promise you Jesus opposes injustice and chooses loving disruption over silence and tradition. Justice is love in action. And Jesus says, follow me. The second boundary is a radical commitment to nonviolence. Remember the cry of the nationalists, take up your sword. Nothing could be more antithetical than take up your cross. It's a statement of full opposition to those that suppress justice. But here's the truth. Having that boundary, taking action and speaking against the system will cause you to be shamed by the system, dismissed by the system, written off by the system, maybe even punished and killed by the system. But Jesus would rather take up the cross and die at the hands of those who have forgotten love and forgive them than take up the sword. We will not use the methods of oppression to secure our liberation. History shows us this has yet to work, though we have tried. The plot twist of Jesus is this. His law is love and his good news is peace. Oppression ceases when we follow his way. Friends, these boundaries are not about calling all suffering good. And it's not a message about how to die. It's about how we live. We live by surrender, surrendering our false self, everything that opposes love and working to create justice and liberation for all things, no matter the cost. Deny yourself and take up your cross is about how we live in a world steeped in systems that bring death. We look at violence inflicted on people who don't choose the violence that their bodies receive. And we say no more. 
By choosing nonviolent resistance, Jesus shames the system itself. And this is how the cross we wear around our necks is about innocence instead of guilt. This is what makes it a place where mercy and suffering collide. When we, when we follow the way of Jesus, we co-opt the violence and coercion of the system and we choose it, emptying it of power. A cross is powerless and cannot silence if one is willing to choose it, if, if they must. The way is love and love looks like justice. In Luke 10, we see the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of us know the basics of that story, right? The religious leaders ask, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story. Remember that hierarchy, right, that I showed you? It existed within Jewish society as well. And it looked like the priests, and then it would the, go out into like your regular Jewish people. And then you had, you know, your the slaves and, 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 and the further out you went, the less worthy people got. So we've got your regular Jews closer to the middle. And then you've got the Samaritans way out on the edges with the Gentiles. Who is my neighbor? How far out of the circle do I need to go? A Jewish man is robbed, beaten, left for dead on the side of the street between Jerusalem and Jericho. Various religious leaders, those at the center of power, see this wounded man and they pass him by. Let's pause for a little context. You know what they were doing and what they were being when they passed by the wounded man? Very good law keepers. Following purity laws, being faithful to the words of God found in the Holy Scripture of Exodus and Leviticus. They were being good Christians. <laughs> To touch a dead body or a dead person or a potentially dead person would mean that they would be unclean and couldn't do temple duties. They were following the law to the T. I mean, there were other laws that they could decide to follow in order to help, but cleanliness and purity was a big deal, especially for the priests. Somebody lower could be unclean and help. Justice was somebody else's job that day. And then comes along the Samaritan. The Samaritans are the black sheep of the Jewish family, the mudbloods of Israel. And the Samaritan tends to the wounds of his enemy. And he doesn't just get him to safety and wash his hands of him. He pays for his healing and for his restoration. The Samaritan is actually fulfilling the Jewish laws of reparations outlined in Exodus and Leviticus. He's going above and beyond his own law and reaching into the heart of God. He has no guilt here. He has no requirement to help. But he's bringing restoration and reparations even though he never committed a crime against this man. Because there's some laws that are higher than tradition and history. The Samaritan denied himself. He knew who he was, who he was. So he could empty himself of all the projections and false stories that Jewish tradition had burdened him with. It's possible, given how people viewed Samaritans and the way that they knew the law, 
they might have even assumed because he was paying reparations that he was admitting guilt. Regardless, his true self responded to the suffering of another human being. He had to deny every false projection he'd ever made about Jewish people to get this done too. But he's not letting anyone's politics or policies or past history get in the way of love. And he's just not being nice. He's being subversive and challenging the moral status quo. The Samaritan is not safe, but he is good. To be a good Samaritan is to live like activist Angela Davis, who said, I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. One last plot twist. This Samaritan is in decidedly Jewish territory, nowhere near Samaria. If you look on a map, there's like Jerusalem, Jericho, and Samaria is way up here. Um, so I, I, why is he there? I, I don't even know, but he is out of place. He's the outsider. He's the oppressed person in this location. And this story in Luke is being told by Jewish leaders in a Jewish place by a Jewish man. Sometimes we don't see how a system that we benefit from is harming us. Privilege, hierarchy, some traditions harm everyone. We don't even see that we're bleeding and in a ditch. Systems of dominance and power imbalance cause wounding to everyone, everyone, everyone in it. And then it gaslights everyone, everyone, everyone to believe that wounding is normal. It's the way it has been and must always be, says the system. So I want us to imagine this story and think of someone that our religious traditions have told us this is the way it has been and always must be. Who can't influence us? Who is on the slippery slope? I think of the different stories I was told growing up. I mean, it could be anything. There's, there's been a lot of people, even in my almost 45 years, that have had limitations put on them. Age, marital status, gender, sexual identity, lots of disqualifiers. So, so hold, hold in your mind that the picture of that person. Put yourself in the story. Now imagine Jesus is telling this story and you find out you are the wounded one. You cannot be healed by anyone within your system. Your social structure has nothing to offer you. And who you need to receive from, to learn from, to be healed by is the person you've spent your whole life trying to keep yourself safe from. It's the end of the roast that never fit the pan. Denying yourself and taking up your cross looks like normalizing discomfort. I don't think change happens any other way. I hate it when it's happening. 
And I'm so glad for it after. Sometimes it's the discomfort of loving someone you thought wasn't your neighbor. Sometimes it's the discomfort of realizing you were the neighbor in need of love. But just remember, the roast was never the problem. It's the pan that was too small. So as we close, I want to invite you to imagine with me. And you can participate as much or as little as you want in this exercise. It's, it's for you. You know, Jesus only operates by consent and never by coercion. Your yes and your no are sacred. But if you want to, I invite you to close your eyes and to imagine you're with Jesus. Take a, take a deep breath. Your humanity is good here. Your humanity is part of this equation. So imagine you're one of the disciples, the ones who love him, who are friends with him, want to follow him. And Jesus says such a curious thing. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. I just want you to take a breath. That's, that sounds really different, Jesus. I want to invite you to ask, is there a lie, a belief, a tradition, a prejudice that Jesus is saying it's safe to let go of this? Maybe you can imagine Jesus telling you one small act of courage that will disrupt the status quo in you or around you. Maybe you want to ask Jesus, how will you bring the weighty resistance of peacemaking into your world this week? Maybe it's radical self-acceptance, compassion, Maybe it's education. Maybe it's normalizing discomfort as a gift. Maybe it's learning and listening to marginalized perspectives, books, theologies. Maybe it's financial donation, reparations, Maybe it's advocating for more just laws. Maybe it's tearing down our inner resistance to change. One small act of courage. What is Jesus inviting you into? Or maybe you feel like you're already there. You're already, you're already in that place. I invite you to ask what liberation is there waiting on the other side of following? Notice what feelings or sensations arise for you. Notice and appreciate what liberation for all things feels like. And as we close, I invite you to ask if there's a mental picture or a reminder 
of this moment that Jesus would give to you as a gift to remind you of his belief in you, of our collective journey as we grow and learn and follow together. Jesus says, follow me because he believes in us. Let that thought settle in deep. Jesus, we see you in this story and we believe you. We want to follow you into more love. May our arms open wider, your table stretch longer, and our roots go deeper and deeper, rooted and grounded in love that changes the world. Amen. <laughs>